As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Thank you, Meredith. And thank you, Bobby, for sharing this morning with us and being part of our church. Well, we continue this series on in Philippians. Uh, we're taking the time here to look through the story in Acts, though, where Paul and Silas first show up in Philippi and how the gospel really progressed. And this story this morning that Meredith read for us is really fascinating. And if you've been paying attention or if you just have Acts 16 in front of you, you see the story. Paul and Silas following the leading of the Spirit, they come into Macedonia. The, The Spirit has made it possible for them to come. They go to the city. They find a place of worship. They go and you find Lydia last week converted uh, to Christianity, uh, this woman of great, I mean, her story is tremendous, and as George preached it last week, you know, what a fascinating woman she is that's got her own, she has means, she's upwardly mobile, she's able to earn a living, she's religious, she's interested in God and learning more, and her heart is awakened to the gospel in a new way, and she worships and brings Paul and Silas to her home and her whole household is converted. And then the story picks up now with the story of this second girl who couldn't be more unlike Lydia in so many ways. <laughs> they don't seek her out, but rather this girl finds them as they're on their way to that same place of prayer to continue to do the work of their ministry. This young slave girl keeps following them. And we know that this woman has a spirit amongst her. She's doing fortune-telling and she follows them for many days, which is an interesting phrase, until finally Paul gets fed up and annoyed and turns to her and casts out the demon, and she's freed from the possession of the demon and from the oppression of her owners. And it's a really interesting story in so many ways. It's interesting, and it, and it raises a lot of really big questions as we, read the, as we read the narrative, right? Why this story? Why this girl? Why is she included in it? Who is she? And that we have very few details about her, but we clearly see, Luke wants us to see, that she's oppressed. She's possessed by a demon, and she's being exploited by her owners, This practice that she's engaged in of divination, of fortune-telling, really common in the ancient world. It's common now, too, as much as we think we're very rational and nobody does these things anymore. It's common still today. But then especially, and especially with these young slave girls, and there was this belief and this understanding or this hope that they could speak the truth. 
and they would do it. And a lot of times, pr prostitution and sex was associated with it. And the idea was, especially if you could get these young girls pregnant, then like from their womb, the, the truth would come. And there's all kinds of just really abusive, horrible things that came along with being a slave girl in the first century, but who also was possessed and who could speak this kind of truth. And so you have this woman, this young girl, who really is in a very difficult position, whose owners clearly just use her for profit, who men are using as well, and who finds Paul and Silas. And she knows the truth, right? She sees what they're doing. She hears the gospel that they're proclaiming, and she knows the truth. She knows that what they are presenting is the way of salvation, and so she's declaring it. And she follows them daily, proclaiming the truth of the gospel and that these men have the truth. But she's not truly free. She knows the gospel, she knows the truth of it, but it's not enough. It's, she's not free of her demon, and she's not free of her owners. And you have that physical oppression and spiritual oppression just going hand in hand, in which we know those two things go hand in hand. You can't have physical oppression without spiritual oppression. And you can't have spiritual oppression without some sort of physical going along with it. And you find this girl physically and spiritually oppressed and held down who finds the truth of the gospel and Paul finally gets bothered enough to do something about it. It's a great question. Like, why did it take Paul many days to free this young girl? You know, why didn't he do it the moment he met her? Why was he so bothered? Why did he wait so long to actually do it? And what you see in the text, you know, Luke, the author here of Acts, doesn't necessarily give you a lot of what's going on in terms of the reasoning behind Paul, why he's not doing it. But you do see he gets to the breaking point. He comes to a place where he finally says, enough is enough. I'm going to cast this demon out of this girl. And it doesn't seem like he's annoyed with the girl, right? He doesn't seem annoyed with the girl. He sounds very like Jesus. And that's, you know, Luke, the author of Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And you see Jesus and Paul acting in similar ways, where Jesus gets fed up sometimes and just starts healing people. And, get, and it's not with the person that he's upset with, but he's upset with that state that she's in until finally, look, this is enough. I'm going to set her free. And you kind of understand why he was waiting so long as the narrative continues, because then you see the real consequence of the gospel that they're preaching. And once he frees this girl, then they are dragged into court and they are beaten and thrown in prison. <laughs> he knew that when he cast out this demon, there was going to be consequences, that this act of justice was not going to go unnoticed. And you really have the true threat of the gospel and the consequences of it really coming to bear, and you see it all throughout Acts, and you see it with Paul's ministries, that everywhere they go, everywhere the gospel is preached, it comes with great consequence, and it comes with great power, and it really does change things. There's a very common critique of Christianity you know, today, in a lot of ways, of just religion and Christianity, that Christianity is just an opiate of the people, right? Christianity just makes everything fine. It just keeps people docile. You know, just 
as long as you're believing, that's great. Do what you do. You know, we're fine with people preaching the gospel as long as, you know, it, because it's good. It keeps everybody happy and appeased. And, but nothing could be further from the truth when you actually see the history of Christianity and the spread of Christianity and how it works. And even in now, you know, and once, and that's historically true, once the leaders actually realize how potentially destructive the gospel is to their whole way of life, then they start intervening. And that's what happens with Paul and Silas as well. It's not just this good news of the gospel that's being preached, but rather the true gospel comes forth and changes lives and it causes great pain and it comes with a cost. And you see the cost to Paul and Silas in the story. You see the cost really for this girl too. You know, the story is pretty quiet about what happens to her next. Yeah, but what does happen to this girl? She's been set free, but it came with giving up her whole way of living and what she knew. It gave, she had to give up a lot, and Paul and Silas had to give up a lot. There's a lot of rejection and pain left with only Christ at the end of that. Who took her in? What home would she have gone into? Did the church in Philippi take her on? Did they meet her needs? But I mean, walking into that, situation must have been terrifying for her. And many of us in the story, and you think about last week with Lydia, many of us could identify with Lydia, upwardly mobile, kind of have our act together, fairly educated, have been seeking after truth, looking for understanding, but just wanting, you know, but needing to kind of really have our hearts enlightened and open. I mean, many of us are Lydia's and, and can relate to her. Many of us, though, can also relate to this slave girl, Feeling like no part of your life is really under control. <laughs> Feeling like oppressed by all kinds of outside forces. Knowing the truth, but really needing to be freed. To be lifted out of your situation. Who could and at what point would this come? But knowing that to be lifted out of that situation, to be set free, is going to come with great cost. And is going to enter into even more pain and suffering at times without any hope in this world besides Christ and just clinging to the gospel and the hope that he's going to be enough and that this fledgling church is really going to take care of you and I can walk away from the only life that I've ever known. Luke is being very intentional within Acts and with these three narratives. And as you kind of, because you look at things, in Luke, in Luke 16, and George showed us Lydia last week. This week, we see the slave girl. Next week, we're going to see the jailer in Philippi get converted. And that's all part of Luke's intention. He's a great storyteller. You know, if, you, if you've read the scriptures, Luke, he's by far my favorite author in scripture. He's just so clear. And he loves to do this to us, of giving us three little narratives, three little stories, and bringing them together. He did it all the time with Jesus, too, and giving you three parables close together. And he does it through Acts, too. Almost every city where Paul shows up, Luke likes to give you three little stories of three different people and ha what happened, just so you can compare them, so you can see what's going on, so you can see the power of the gospel and what we're supposed to see. And we see Lydia... We see this oppressed, poor slave girl, and then next week we're going to see the jailer, and all of their lives are going to be transformed by the gospel, and they're all going to be transformed in different ways, and in a large extent, we start to see the pattern, and we start to see what the point is of what the work Paul and Silas are starting to do. 
what it is that they're called to, how the Spirit is working. And there's a significant pattern that we see within Paul's work. Paul shows up in a major city, preaches the gospel, people's lives are changed and transformed, churches are established, and those churches continue that same model and work out from there. And if you think about the way the ancient world worked with major cities, it's very similar to the way it is today as well with the significance of a city. The city being that very cultural, economic, political, religious center. Right? If you wanted to reach the world, you go to the city. It's really the same thing today. If you want to reach the world, you go into the cities. If you just look at the Twin Cities, it's an amazing mix of people. It's an incredible center for culture and religious life in the Midwest. All people are represented here, all beliefs and areas, and more and more people are moving into the city. I recently saw a statistic, five million people worldwide move into cities every day. In the last 20 years, more and more people are flooding into cities, not just in America, but this is a phenomenon across the world right now, especially with economic booms happening in various places. The city has become the place in which people go to. If you're looking for work, you're looking for refuge, you're looking for anything, you go to the city. There's a reason the slave girls in Philippi, most of the major cities in the ancient world were predominantly slaves, mostly slaves in the cities, like Athens. It's three quarters of the city are just slaves, all moving there, looking there, looking for an owner, looking for a better life, hoping for something. Everyone flees to the city to look for something that will give them life, that will give them happiness, that will give them a th- something of value, and we still see that today. The cities are being flooded with people. If you live in Minneapolis or if you live in St. Paul, you understand the housing crisis that's going on and the, the issue with affordable housing. More and more people are looking to move into the cities. And so it's exactly where Paul would go now. It's exactly where Paul went then. Go to the city and preach the gospel. Because in the city, right, where else can you encounter these types of people on your walk to church? Right, which is what Paul and Silas are doing. On their way to prayer, they encounter Lydia and a slave girl. Right? And both of these women encounter the living God and are saved. And what you see then within this story in Philippi is you see how the gospel is for all people. How the gospel, the same gospel, can impact all kinds of different lives. The upwardly mobile and the educated the progressive, the fairly religious, like George was referencing last week, how there's a great openness to the gospel amongst that community, right? We have this feeling that those people are very closed off to Christianity. They would never believe. We can't really, it's just, no, no. They're they're eager. They're desperate for Christ. They, They want to hear the gospel. They would love to be able to be captured by the beauty of Christ, to move past just knowledge of him into actual worship of him. But then we also see in this narrative how there's also a whole other demographic in our lives and who are with us who don't need the knowledge of Christ, but who desperately need to be set free from their bondage and from their slavery. They're oppressed by spiritual and physical forces. And though they know the truth, they can't free themselves. They're just not Lydia's. 
due to all kinds of circumstances, they're trapped. And then next week, we're going to see probably my favorite character in this, the jailer, blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth. If you can show me a practical benefit to following Jesus, I'm all for it, but otherwise, I don't care. (laughs) Those people are there, too. The city is full of all of these people from all different types of life, and the gospel is coming to all of them. And so when when you see in Philippi here is that when the Spirit is at work and the church is joining with the Spirit, you see the, the gospel transforming everyone's life, all types of people. Right? What a great sign that the Spirit is active. When you see lots of different type of people, lives become enlivened by the Spirit, people being set free, not just physically and spiritually, but all elements of their life become free in the gospel That's what it looks like. And we know this because throughout Scripture we see that the church is God's plan for revealing himself to the world. That when the church becomes established in these cities, when the church becomes established in that way, right? this is in Ephesians, right? that even the angels will look upon the church and say, wow, I get it. Now I understand what God's been doing since before the creation of the world. This church... That's an amazing, amazing thing. This place that really is the best representation of unity and diversity. And the church really is. If you're looking for something that can actually represent really what all of us are after, right? I mean, the culture talks about unity. The culture talks about diversity. We want freedom and we want all these things. But then you look for examples of it. Like, where are these people? Where is there where there could be people of different political affiliations, different races, different genders, different ethnicities, who could gather together and actually love each other and be bonded together? How is that even possible? It just doesn't exist in the world today. You just look and you don't find anywhere where that's true, except for the church. The church is unlike any other group. And if you think about your own experiences thus far, you think about if you've been part of the church or part of other churches, if you're part of this church, you think about your house church as a good example. Just think of the people that are in your house church. Now, outwardly, because we're from Minnesota, we may look similar in a lot of ways on the outside, but really when you peel back some of those layers, we're vastly different. You look at the people that you are with in your house church, and there's no reason that you should be friends. There's no reason you should be family. What do you have in common? Why would this be the people that God has put into your life? Why are these the people that you are so bonded with? And that really is the wisdom of, of God in this world. People look at the church and say, this is weird. <laughs> How are you guys so close? Why do you love this person so much? Don't you know what they did? <laughs> Don't you know they have a felony? Don't you know what they believe when it comes to politics? Don't you know they voted for... (laughs) How can you say you love them? How are you so close to them? Why are you willing to give up so much for them? Why are you so close? There's no reason for this. And that's the church. It's a powerful thing that the Spirit is doing. It's a powerful thing that we see the Spirit doing in the book of Acts. It's a powerful thing that we see the Spirit doing in our lives. And in our church, where you find 
one family, one people being built together out of many. It's hard labor that we join. The work that Paul and Silas are doing is hard and comes with great cost. Bringing freedom to people is hard. As many of you know, some of you have been reached and have been made free. Some of you are working to free people. It is hard. The work of reconciliation has consequences. It requires resources. It requires time and money. But that end product of the church is beautiful. It truly is the hope of the world. This beautiful bride of Christ that one day will be without blemish and that Christ will come back and redeem and take home. This is the work that we see Paul and Silas doing in Acts. This is the work that the church in Philippi is being called to do. And it's the work that we're being called to do. Is the mic too annoying? Should I grab a different mic? Maybe? Yes? All right, we'll keep going. We'll keep going with this. In my ears, it's annoying, but we'll just keep pushing through. Right, but this is the work that the Spirit is doing. And that's why Luke shows it to us. This is what the Spirit does. This is what the Spirit is doing. This is what we're called to do. <laughs> right? The church is going to be joining Paul and Silas in this work. Paul and Silas show up, they freed these people, and then they're leaving them with the church to continue this work. This is our model as well. We come into the city and we preach the gospel, and we're to reach these people. We're to reach the Lydias. Many of us are Lydias who are well-equipped to reach Lydias. Many of us are, have been that slave girl and who know those slave girls still who need to be reached and who need to be freed, and it's our job to do it. As the church, we're to embody and complete this work. But in practice, right, while it sounds beautiful, in practice, it often doesn't look this way. Right? It doesn't often look this way because the church often doesn't look as beautiful as we're called to look. Oftentimes, we find instead churches that reach Lydia's and then who end up just being churches full of Lydia's upwardly mobile, educated, have their acts together, good teaching, good worship. I get to go to work tomorrow. Here we go. All the same, very much the same people all gathering together regularly, doing the same types of things. And then oftentimes you have other churches, though, that who are made up of the slave, those who have been set free, and you have churches of just people who are coming out of addiction, a church just for people coming out of addiction, or churches just for the poor, or who are made up of only of the poor. So it's, it, it's fractured, it feels like, that church's witness and picture. At times we know what the church is called to do, but it doesn't always look the way that it's supposed to look. Because the reality of Christianity is that while Christianity has such power, it also has this weakness that as the church becomes comfortable, it kind of goes to seed. When the church becomes in power and grows comfortable, the gospel gets lost pretty quickly. Right? You see this historically. that The church, while it always starts well, it almost always peters out. 
and grows into something very comfortable, very status quo, and then it needs a revival. <laughs> it's got to wake up. Because Christianity is not good in comfort. Christianity does not do well when it has power. Christianity does incredibly well when it's at the margins, and it does incredibly well in weakness. But in comfort, it just goes to seed. And as a church, right, in America and here in us, right, this is always going to be the temptation and the danger within us, that we become so comfortable that we stop getting annoyed by the injustices around us. Right, that we, we become so comfortable that we stop being bothered right, by the people we pass on the way to church, that we stop becoming bothered enough to speak the truth to Lydia's or to free the slave girls in our lives because we're comfortable. But we know and we see that the city needs more than just gifted teaching and preaching. Our city needs more than just the spoken word. It also needs freedom. It needs justice. It needs people to pull out those who are oppressed and to give them freedom. But it also needs more than just relief efforts. And it seems like those two, you have so many of both. Those who give relief but don't speak the truth. And those who do a lot of truth speaking but who don't do a lot of helping. But it's got to be both, right? The city needs both because both groups can tend to get very comfortable into what they do and to who they are, and it hinders the work of the Spirit. We all have people, right, in our lives. And as we think about these narratives and as we think about these types of people in our lives, we have them. You have them. You know who they are in your life. If it's a Lydia, many of us have Lydias in our lives because we're Lydias. We're, we work, we, we know people who are educated, who may have had a religious background, who are open to the gospel in reality, but we're too afraid to really enter into dialogue and even explain or talk to them about it because we don't want to offend or we don't want to hurt relationships or any of those types of things. We know there are Lydias around us. It's our job to speak to them. And for others of us, we have these people who are oppressed around us. We see them, we know them, we could be the ones who enter into their lives and who help them, but we don't, oftentimes. We have people who need this from us, who desperately need us to pray for them, and we don't. We have people in our lives who desperately need us just to speak to them, but we don't, who need us to invest in them, to actually just spend time with them, but we don't. Who need help if it's monetary, but we don't give. We have people who need our love, who deserve to be loved. In our house church, that we don't. In our neighborhoods, that we don't. All around us, and we don't give them our love. We don't give of ourselves freely to them. We hold back. So what is it that stops us from doing this? Why is it so easy for us to become comfortable? Why do I become comfortable with the group that I have? 
Why am I become comfortable? Because this is really the reality. Is right, as churches grow, we become comfortable with who we have in our midst. I become comfortable with that little group, whatever it is, or however big. Right? If it's a house church we're talking about, we go very comfortable. Those in house churches know this. It's so easy to become comfortable. I love these people. I finally got to know these people. They know me. This is so great. I don't want to break this up. I don't want to bring in anybody. I don't want to send anybody out. I don't, this is it. This is good. If you want to hey, start your own group, that's great. You should. But don't come into my group because I really like what I got going here. Or as a church, you be just become, hey, look, we're meeting, we're, we're meeting pressing needs. We are uh, paying the bills. Things are going really, really well. This is great. We, this is just who we are as a church. We're just going to, this is us. And you become comfortable. Why do we become so comfortable with this when we can see around us such need, when we actually open our eyes and we see it? We talked about this when we went through the minor prophets and the necessity of the prophetic voice to call us out of our comfortable states because we just become comfortable. And we become very reluctant to step into people's lives, and we become very reluctant to step into people's lives that are different than ours. Why is it? Well, I think it's because we've got the same problem as the rest of the culture has. And I think our biggest problem is we have really good self-defense mechanisms. They're really ingrained in us. All of culture has these. I've become immune to this. I don't get bothered because I, I have a script in me of how to not be bothered. Right? We have, I'm not in a position to help right now. Great defense. Look, I'm really busy. I don't, I'm not that rich to begin with. I don't really have that much time. You know, there's others, thankfully, who are in a much better position than me. I just, right now, I'm not, it's just not the right time for me to do that. I, I'm just not in a position to speak to this person. I'm not in a position, it's just not my time. Classic defense mechanism that all of us have. This is not just a Christian issue. Or, you know what, they're not really that bad off anyway. You know what, they're doing okay. This person's, it's not like they're, you know, totally on the street. You know, they're doing okay. If, if, when it gets really bad, I can step in, we can step in, we'll do something. As long as they're able to, look, they're paying their bills, what's the big deal? You know, it, it, it's not that big of a deal. I was able to get myself out of my situation. They should too. Look, I've gone through that. I've been where they are. You know what they need is they need to just get into the same program I did. (laughs) They can do this. They need to do it on their own. I did it on mine. Nobody helped me. Why should I help them? I'm not very gifted at this. You know, it's not in my wheelhouse. When it comes to sharing the gospel, that's just, you know, thankfully there's other people who are more gifted at this than I am. I would, I would mess it up anyway. If I tried to do this, it would just go bad. It's best for me just not to do anything here and just trust that somebody else will do it. You know, and the good, there's other organizations that will help them. Whew, thank goodness. Thank goodness that there's all those, you know what, there's a homeless shelter, there's treatment centers, there's other places, you know what, that's good. We'll direct them there. We'll direct them there. We don't, I don't need to do something. The church, does, we're, you know what, let's get them to one of those other places that really can help people. Which goes right along into that. There's other people 
who should help them. And that's probably the most common one where we sit in judgment and anger or just like, yeah, amen, the church should do something. So that means, yeah, Lawrence and George, you guys got to, about time the church starts taking this seriously. And that's the culture too, <laughs> just sitting back and saying, yeah, we got to start doing something, but not me. No, no, no. I don't have any power. I don't have any, I can't do anything, but they should. Those with power should. And it's, it's a defense mechanism. You know, and even if I did help them, boy, they would just abuse it. They wouldn't appreciate it. They'd just go right back to where they were before. Or the best one is probably, this is the one maybe it's closest to home, right? They, they haven't asked for help. If they ask me, absolutely. I'll wait till they ask. If they ask me, I'll help them. But I'll just wait till they ask for help. These were so well guarded. <laughs> We have all of these walls up that enable us to not be bothered by people who are lost in our midst, regardless of who it is. I mean, this isn't just about those who are oppressed and who are poor. This is also for the upperly mobile, too, <laughs> where we have these defense mechanisms where we just say, look, I'm not, this isn't my, I don't have to do anything here. How can we actually get past these defense mechanisms? How can I actually get to a place where I, can, I have the courage and the confidence to speak the truth of the gospel and to actually give generously of my life to people. Because it's what we're called to do. It's, what, it's my deepest desire. It's all of our desires. We all want to do this, but we don't do it. And this is the culture, too. That, that inconsistency, this is of all people, right? Where you have this desire to do something, but then you look at, why am I not doing it? Why am I not consistent with what I even believe is true? How do we do it? Well, it's not until you see yourself as truly poor and in need of saving will you feel any genuine love and empathy for those around you. You just won't feel it unless you actually see yourself as in greater need than those people around you. Because the go-to response or the go-to way to motivate the church, and not just the church, culture too, to do something is guilt, right? We'll show you pictures, we'll do a benefit concert, we'll throw a text number up there. You should give. And it works sometimes to a certain degree. It can get through some of those defense mechanisms where we feel bad enough, we'll do something. Or if we feel like we ought to, as good Christians, do something, we'll do something. But guilt is not a sustaining motivator, and guilt does not produce love. I can't be guilted into loving my neighbor. It's not until I see how Christ freely gave himself for me, and that nothing I have is mine to begin with, because it's that picture of, you know, Jesus is blessed are the poor in spirit, but we don't really believe we're poor in spirit. We believe we're middle class in spirit. I think I've used that before, the idea of like, you know, I, I know I'm bad, but I'm not really that bad. No, we're bad. I have nothing. I have nothing. Everything I have is God's. Everything I have is a gift. I own nothing. Paul and Silas are not treating even their lives as their own because it's not. I have nothing of my own. 
everything I have has been given to me by God. Until I see that and I see and really believe that God generously gave of himself for me, will I actually be awakened to see the needs of those around me and genuinely love them? Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, writes, you know, that he believes that there is, in every Christian, there really is a heart for the poor. That there really is. He thinks in every Christian, deep down, there's a heart for the poor. (laughs) But it needs to be awakened. It's sleeping inside of all of us. And it just has to push that button to wake it up. He says, guilt won't wake it, but grace will. When you actually experience grace, that heart wakes up to where you start to genuinely love people. And you stop, to ho- you stop holding back of yourself, withholding yourself and your resources and your time, and you actually love people because you've been so generously loved and given to. What would it take for your heart to be awakened to Christ and to his love? that would enable you to join in the Spirit's work in the city, in your neighborhood, in your house church, at your work? What would it take for that heart to become alive? When we are captured by the grace of God's love for us, that undeserving love given to us, when we think about Christ, who didn't think of his life or his blood as his own, but gave it freely for us, who knew we would never deserve it, he gave it freely who knew we would trample it, who knew we wouldn't appreciate the gift, who never asked for it, who freely gave of himself for us. When we know this, and when we know the ending to the story, when we know how much Christ loves this world and is working to renew it, and that one day all things will be made new, when we believe and see God working, we become awakened. We become eager to join the Spirit, and we don't want to hinder it any longer. When we actually trust Him and trust the gospel and trust the Spirit to be at work, it's not the work that unifies us as a church, right? That's not what unifies the Philippians. It's not what's unifying Paul and Silas, that they're doing the same thing. That's not what unifies us. What unifies us is that we all have the same Savior, (laughs) that we are all sinners saved by grace. We're all desperately in need, that none of us have our act together, and that all of us have been freely given this gift. What a leveler. That's how the church can be made up of rich and poor and male, (laughs) because we're all the same, because we've all been saved the same way. It's the same gospel. It's one gospel, one Lord, one church. But until we actually believe that, and believe that we haven't earned our salvation, but that it was a gift from God, right? We won't practice it. So let us be a church, right, that really seeks after the Spirit and that trusts Christ to do the work in our own hearts. And let's seek that first, right, for our hearts to be awakened to the Spirit and to that love so that we can genuinely love the people around us and join in with the work that's going around us by the Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your spirit. Oh, without that, where would we be? Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness, for the redemption of sin. Who are we 
that you would save us, that you would bless us so richly, that you would leave your home and come to this earth and bleed and die for us. Lord, we pray that you wake us up, that you wake up the heart within us for the poor, for the marginalized, and for the for the, those in power and who are upwardly mobile, Lord, just everyone around us, Lord, help us not to grow comfortable in our lives, but to become increasingly annoyed with the lack of justice and freedom in the world, to become increasingly annoyed with the lack of peace. Lord, stir in us the desire to join you in the work that you're doing, bringing the gospel to all people everywhere. And Lord, strengthen us for that work. We know it will come with great cost. But we know that nothing we give, we don't receive back. Who are we to withhold and to keep the very blessings that you've given us to be able to give to others. Lord, strengthen us as a church to join in the work that you're doing around us and in us. In your son's name we pray.